You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. So joining me today is Tao Tran, who is the knowledge manager at the international firm Fried Frank. She's based in New York, and you may have also seen her as the member liaison of ILTA as she visits and runs a lot of these events. And I've known Tao for a, a little, a few years now, actually, and we met randomly at ILTA once at one of the conferences, and Tao has been wonderful. So thank you, Tao, for joining me today. No, thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. I'm excited about this. I've never done a podcast before, so this is my first. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Well, yeah, no problem. My pleasure. So I suppose the best and the easiest way to start, and I ask this all of my guests, is would you mind sharing just how you got to where you are now? So what, what's been your road from being, you know, whatever you did in the past to becoming a knowledge manager? What's the journey been like for you? Yeah, so I am a Southern California girl. I grew up in Southern California. I went to college at UCLA. And as we all know, around middle of college, you have to start thinking about, you know, grad school or not grad school. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And my family members have always said that I was pretty argumentative and spoke my mind. So maybe I should go to law school and seeing as there were no better alternative that I could think of, I didn't want to be the stereotypical doctor, not only because I didn't want to be a doctor, but because life sciences and I did not agree. I couldn't memorize all of those facts for my life. (laughs) And law school seemed less of a commitment. It was only three years instead of, you know, the four years of medical school plus residency and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I took the easy way out. As many other lawyers would tell you, I applied to law school. I went to Berkeley. While I was at Berkeley, I decided that having grown up in Southern California, I wanted to try something new. So I, when it was interview season, I interviewed for New York firms, all of the New York firms that were interviewing at Berkeley at the time. Mm. And I settled down at Free Frank and I practiced here for seven years as a banking finance associate. And the journey to KM is just a little bit fortuitous in that I have a mentor and he's still my mentor, a really great Fried Frank partner who I worked with as an associate in my whole associate life. My first transaction was with him. And around, you know, different lawyers will get to it at different times where they sort of, if the question ever comes up, where they start thinking about, you know, work-life balance. And for me, that came up during around the seventh year mark where I really didn't know if I could keep on going at the rate that I was going at a, you know, a New York big law law firm. And, you know, I confided all of this in, in my mentor. And he said, you know, that's actually pretty funny because they were looking for somebody to do KM. We've never had a KM person before, but he was a very strong believer in KM. He originated, he he made partner in our London office. So he practiced in London for a couple of years. And that's how he was exposed to the concept of knowledge management. And he really wanted to bring it to the firm. 
and specifically to our group, the finance group. And he said, you know, I don't know where else you're looking, but why don't you consider this as an option? Because I already had all of the right relationship and the connections and the history with the firm. And so it just literally, it just sort of like dropped into my lap when I needed, when I needed it. And I thought about it and I accepted it because, I mean, the I really love the firm. I really love Free Frank and I love working with the people here. And to the extent that I can continue to work with the people who are given that chance, I said, OK. And so that was my path to KM. I mean, I really didn't know anything about KM and he sort of gave me a primer on KM. I sort of created my own role within the group as to, you know, the things that and the kind of projects that I wanted to work on and to focus on. And it has really grown over the year, my role here to expand from just our one group in finance to basically most of the groups in corporate. So now I'm the corporate KM manager. And I also work closely with the group managers of other groups who don't have KM, like our real estate group, just to sort of loop them in into the KM world and sort of offer specific KM projects for those groups on an ad hoc as needed basis. So that's how I went from a Southern California girl to being a KM lawyer in New York. Wow. And how, how long have you been doing the KM function then? So, the uh, Going on five years now. Okay. And so there's a lot, lot of things to unpack and uh, I want to focus a lot on the KM side of things. But before that, uh, one of the things I, I wrote down as, as you're talking was about the mentor that you mentioned, this partner. And I'm a huge believer in you know, having good mentors. Um, and I think it does make a considerable difference, uh, whether it's professionally or, or personally. How did you get this partner to be your mentor? Did he know he was your mentor or that you just worked for him? And obviously he gave you advice as a, as a colleague, as your senior. What was the, you know, if I can take you back to that, what was that like? Yeah, I, I love to talk about this and I've talked to other associates, younger associates about this. I think there's two ideas to mentorship and sponsorship. People use those two terms and I really do see him as a combination of both for me. And a lot of places within law firms, within big organizations, they'll have formal mentorship, sponsorship programs set up with what's, what's the, the difference hope between to, mentorship and sponsorship, just for clarity. Sure. So I think sponsorship is somebody who is supposed to help you with your career trajectory, but not really get into the nitty gritty of your daily practice. Just sort of like an overarching figure that you can go to for career advice and help you stay on the right path versus a mentor, supposedly. And this is just from, you know, talks and, and trainings that I've been to. And a mentor is supposed to be somebody who's much more hands-on, who mm. checks in with you more often. So I would, I would think like a sponsor is somebody that you check in with, you know, like twice a year versus a mentor is maybe like, you know, once a month. They're much more plugged in into your professional life and give you much more hands-on advice. So usually, you know, a mentor is a senior associate versus a sponsor would be a partner. If you're talking about the law firm context. And and for me, this partner, it wasn't from a and and the firm does have a former a formal 
mentorship program. It just so happens that this partner and I just hit it off really, really well. And what I always try to emphasize when I talk to other associates about mentorship is that sometimes people think the best mentors are the people who are similar to them, you know, whether it's the same gender, same background, same ethnicity. And I tell people to sort of cast a wider net than that. My mentor and I, we literally have nothing in common. I am a female woman of color of Asian descent growing up in Southern California in poverty. He is a German white male who (laughs) grew up between the East Coast and Europe and is fairly privileged. We literally have nothing in common. And the only reason I think we hit it off so well, I think was was that he just, as a first year, I was just very bright eyed, bushy tail, but did not know about anything. (laughs) I was so green that I think he just took pity on me (laughs) and sort of like took me under his wing. I still remember a conversation we had I apologize if this is a little bit, seems like a little insensitive joke to some of your listener, but I sort of tell this as sort of like a funny aha moment where you don't really need anything in common to be a mentor. I remember there was one winter where, you know, I was sitting in his office and I asked him, so are you guys doing anything for the holiday season? And he said, yeah, we're going to, we're going to go skiing. And he asked if I was doing anything. And I said, I think, I I don't remember what I said, but it was basically, you know, not skiing, definitely not skiing. And he said, why not? Don't you like skiing? And I said, just so you know, Asian people do not ski. And he started laughing. He said, isn't that a bit racist? I've seen plenty of Asian people who ski. And I said, not the kind of Asian people like the jungle Asians. Okay. Like we grew up poor. We couldn't afford ski lessons. The best that we can probably do, especially from Southern California is snowboard. And so obviously you do not know me at all. So that was our little joke, (laughs) (laughs) but it's just sort of that kind of rapport where we really didn't have anything in common other than our day-to-day job. But really that was all we needed because other than that and the work ethic, I think he saw in me a work ethic that he liked. And sometimes that's really all it takes. And what do you think is the value that that having someone who's on the other end of the spectrum from you in terms of sort of interest or similarities, what's the value that that adds versus, you know, someone who's, who's ha- who has a similar background to you brings? Having my mentor, and I can only speak about this on a personal level, I mean, really has changed the trajectory of my career. I probably would not be in KM without this mentor. And I think the nice thing about having somebody who's different from you is that they can watch out for blind spots that you yourself don't notice. I still remember when I was a mid-level associate going on to being a senior associate Mm -hmm. and he was giving me some constructive criticism and he said, listen, you don't speak up enough on our phone calls. I don't know if it's a cultural thing where, you know, where you're really deferring to me and other people, but I really need you to speak up more. And I really didn't notice that I didn't speak up. I just really didn't think it was my place to speak up. But after he said that, I really sort of seriously thought about my cultural background. And he did have a point in that, at least in my upbringing, you sort of defer to your elders or the people who are in a 
there's a hierarchical structure. You defer to the people who are above you. So since he was a partner and he's leading the call, I'm not the kind of person who's going to jump in. And I didn't realize that that's really not the way to move forward. He's like, you cannot be a wallflower. You have to break out of that and, you know, speak your mind. So things like that, where you're outside of your comfort zone, if you're, if you have a relationship, a mentorship relationship with somebody who's, who's not from the same background as you, whatever that background might be, there's a little bit of a yin and yang effect where they can watch out for things that you might not necessarily be aware of. And then, you know, vice versa. I actually think even though our little Asians don't ski joke was a little, you know, it's it's funny and a little bit raw, but I think it exposes him to the kind of background that I'm from. Right. And I'm not sure he's been so exposed to as many, you know, ethnic Asian women from poverty impoverished backgrounds, you know, and I think that that made him understand certain things as well over the years that we've worked together. Yeah. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the other thing that having a mentor who's, who hasn't had the same experiences as you brings beyond being on the lookout for blind spots is that they can approach things because they are, they'll be pretty up to speed with what you're doing professionally or personally or you as an individual especially if you're speaking to them once a month but they can also get a sense of just saying things and giving you advice or guidance or at least commentary without having the emotional involvement because that's one of the biggest challenges for everybody you tend to everything seems a lot worse than it is in the present and in the future when you look back then things don't ever seem as bad generally speaking and i think having, whether it's a mentor or somebody else who's not going through the same scenario means that you can get that completely emotionally detached advice or commentary. <laughs> you may not get No, I think that's so true. I think that's so true. And there have been time now that you mention it, that's really a great point. I still remember there's various instances, like I said, because I worked with him so closely, mm-hmm. there have been times where he's gone on vacation and left me to run transactions as the lead attorney on the transaction. And I still remember there's one time where, you know, I thought I had screwed up something and I was so nervous <laughs> and I was, I called my husband and I was crying on the phone at 11 o'clock at night to him saying, Oh my God, I don't know if this deal is going to close because of this. And my partner's on vacation. I don't know what to do. I don't want to call him because he's like driving somewhere and it's late. And I want him to be, to have like, you know, confidence that I can run this deal without him. But if I call him now, he won't. And I was just like bawling to him. And, and my husband's like, it's no big deal. If you can't resolve it, just call him. And so I finally called him. And my partner's like, yeah, just do this. And it, the conversation literally took five minutes. <laughs> yeah. So you're right. I was so close to it that I was hyperventilating versus from far away. He's like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's an issue, but we'll take care of it. You know, yeah. this I, way. I, I've been in that similar situation. And it's, it is nerve wracking in the moment when you think about it. And I've had that instance in the past where when I, it comes to my mind randomly and I think back, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe I was, you know, basically so close to having an anxiety attack because I thought I screwed up so badly (laughs) or whatever was going on or something wasn't. And a lot of the times it's actually things are not even in your control. So it may not even be that you did something. It's just something's happening and you just haven't experienced it yet. And I think having a mentor who can sort of guide you makes a big difference. And that's, that's, that's awesome. Okay. So let's go back to the cam side of things. I have no better segue of that, but um, 
as you, so when you're giving a bit of, I suppose, a history of how you got to KM, one of the things that you mentioned that caught my attention was around this concept of knowledge management. And, you know, when you started, you got a primer on KM. So I, I'm sure, you know, in the last five years, things have changed. At the moment, you know, if, if and I am going to ask you, but as I ask you, what is KM to you? And, you know, if you had to rewrite that primer, if you had a new person join under you, what would you say are like the essential or the core principles of KM to you? You're putting me on the spot. I would have <laughs> to have done homework on this. I think generally KM will mean different things to different institutions depending on their size and their need. This is a little bit of a cop-out answer. It's sort of like that you know, the question, the hot question of the moment, what is AI, right? What is artificial intelligence? That answer will vary depending on who you are and what you do. I think for me, KM at the core, at the core of KM is really efficiency and improving processes. My 30-second elevator pitch to my associates here and people who are not familiar with KM in law firms, and I'm just limiting it to, you know, KM and law firms because that's like the world that I'm familiar with, is I try to find the daily pain points for attorneys, associates, or partners. I try to find out what their daily pain points are and try to resolve those pain points using either improved processes or using technology tools or vendors. I mean, as I just remember being a practicing attorney for so long, you would have conversations either inside your head or with your colleagues about, you know, there has to be a better way of doing what you're doing. And especially with the technology we have now, a lot of the a lot of the work that attorneys and big firms do, it can be replaced or assisted with technology, assisted to make it easier to do, faster to complete, or completely replace. There are certain things that a junior or a paralegal, they would used to have to do that right now can just be completely replaced. And then and we're not talking about, you know, replacing attorneys. So there's, you know, there's always that fear, you know, the computer is going to replace us all. Well, no, it's really meant to be more of a first Pass, just like you do a first draft of something, the computer is going to write that first draft for you and then right. you can still be there to, you know, revise the draft. You know, the work can be done first on a first pass and then the paralegal of the first year, the junior associates can double check and their value will be in double checking and picking up the mistake because we're not turning everything over to the, to the computers 100%. And then part of it is changing human behavior. There are things that attorneys will do just because, quote, unquote, this is the way we've always have done it. No questions asked. And, you know, that's just part of being at a, a big law firm and, you know, the bureaucracy at a big law firm or, you know, at any other sort of big institution. There are just things that people are so used to doing that even though it's inefficient, people will still keep on doing it. And if you have someone to come in with a clear, fresh eye, almost as a consultant, to sort of see, you know, why do we do that that way? What if we can keep the end result, but just change the way we do it, the process just a little bit here and there that inflicts a minimal amount of pain on people? Because people, as we all know, we don't like change, especially lawyers who are generally risk averse and who hate change even more. You want to try to tweak the process in a way that's really negligible on the user, but in a way that has a measurable impact at the end result. So I really think for me, that's what KM is, is being that bridge 
between the lawyers and technology and management and seeing because we're so close because a lot of KM people were, you know, recovering lawyers ourselves. We know what a day to day in the life of a lawyer is like. So we know what tools will work and what processes will work versus those who don't. And, you know, I think if you're coming in from a management for our IT perspective, you might not necessarily know what will not work. You might see, and there's been plenty of time where, you know, our IT team will bring in a tool to sort of let me review and say, you know, we think this will be great for this group. And I'll look at it and I'm like, well, actually, it, you know, this other group will be better. And that's just something that if you don't have that legal education and background, you just wouldn't know. And one of the things that you mentioned, right, as, as part of the CAM role is changing human behavior. And you've obviously embraced that because you've had to change to go from, you know, being an associate and associate to being in KM. How was that transition for you? Did, because it sounds like part of that means that you are obviously going away from the practicing side of things. And please correct me if I'm wrong about any of these things. And the other part is learning to be able to vet and look at these processes, looking at technologies and all all these other things that you probably wouldn't be focusing too much on as a lawyer. So is there a steep learning curve as you're doing, as you're moving from one to the other role? And how do you manage that now as people are coming to you, it sounds like with suggestions and advice, at least around technology? I think the interest has to be there. I've always been interested. And I actually, I did KM projects without even realizing that they were KM projects when I was a practicing attorney with my mentor. And he has the same focus, which is why he wanted to bring KM in, where we want to be better than what we are. We always wanted to continually improve ourselves, not only as lawyers, but also in the things that we do as, you know, day-to-day people. Mm. And the learning curve, it's funny because like I said, you know, I was the first KM person here and I didn't know anything about KM. So part of it was pushing myself to do things that I generally am uncomfortable with, right. which is, you know, I knew that I was the only KM here, KM person here at the firm, but there's plenty of KM attorneys in New York. And, you know, to get a grasp on what other people did as KM roles in other law firms, I would have to go out there. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that anyone else is going to do for me since there's no one else and I'm defining my own role. So the first couple of like, I would say the first six months, I, I, I don't want to say that it was a steep learning curve, but it was a challenging one Right. in that, you know, I'm not, I'm generally not a social networker. I don't actually, I should say I'm not comfortable talking with a large group of people. There's plenty of people with that kind of skill set. That's not me. I don't get social anxiety, but I'm much more comfortable, you know, in a group of like two or three people versus in a group of 15 or 20. And, you know, it it took some mental jujitsu to push myself out the door to sort of make the network and do the networking thing with all of the other attorneys. And I knew they were all really fantastic, supportive, nice people. I mean, there there really is not a better group of people where you're a complete stranger to them. But just by the fact of your KM title, they embrace you wholeheartedly and they sort of like walk you along the KM path. And that's when I learned the variety of KM projects and roles that are out there. And then sort of defining that role here at my firm in a way that makes sense, not only for myself, but also for my firm, which is also something that I had to learn, which is, you know, the whole now that you're you're not generating revenue, but you're on the red side of the balance sheet, so to speak. I had to learn about, you know, 
I have grand ideas just as somebody who has, you know, who just got dropped into something. You're like, oh, my God, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do X, Y and Z. It's going to be fantastic. And then you get hit with the reality of budget, you know, like (laughs) how much money can we actually spend? How much money are you willing to give me? Oh, you're not actually willing to give me any money. Awesome. Let me see what I can do with that. So, like I said, I don't think it was a steep curve to learn, but it was definitely challenging. And the challenge really sort of keeps you excited day to day. You're trying to resolve problems that keep on popping up. And every day, the problem is a little bit different depending on who it's coming from and trying to find the most economical solution that you can in the shortest amount of time possible. Because what you don't want to do is drag out a project for too long and people start losing both interest and confidence in your ability to resolve their problem. Like if I came to you, Ab, and I said, you know, I need help with this. What can you do? And you can say, yeah, I can do this for you, but give me six months versus give me a year and a half. Like no one's going to want to work with me if it's a year and a half. So it's all learning trial by fire almost. Yeah, sounds like it. So how do you... But it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> how, how do you manage it, though? It sounds like you... Do you get a lot of... Is, it, is your role more about now going to the lawyers, looking at the business side of things? And you know, I know your focus is on improving practices, making things efficient, and reducing sort of you know, the daily pain points, if you can call them that. But how do you actually uncover them in the first place? How do you know where the inefficiencies are? I started with what I knew. This is sort of like Barack Obama's campaign style when he first started, which is grassroots. You start at the very bottom. I knew when I was practicing what annoyed me. So I Mm -hmm. fixed those things first. Right. So you're fixing Um, it because you know there's some appetite there. (laughs) Yes. And within the group, with the group of people that are comfortable with me and I'm comfortable with them and I know that they support my vision. So I started small within just my group and I, you know, spearheaded a couple of KM projects for the finance group. They were all very successful because they had support of literally everybody. And then from then, it just became sort of like word on the grapevine. I really didn't even have to advertise my services. People just sort of came because the nice thing about being the only KM person is that everybody else is experiencing very similar problems. Mm -hmm. And then when they heard, oh, finance has towels doing this for finance. Hey, can you do that for me too? So it's wearing a lot of... it became resolving problems for a bunch of finance lawyers to resolving a similar set of problems for a different practice group to this is a practice group I've never worked with and they have a problem that I've never dealt with. But because they're knocking on my door, I'm not going to say no. You know, I like all of these people. It's a challenging problem. I don't have the answer for you yet, but let me talk around and, you know, test out the water and see what I can do for you. So when people come to me, if it's a problem I recognize, I'll tell them, you know, the options I have right away. If it's something I don't recognize, I'll say, huh, let me think about that. I think I have a couple of people that I can talk to. So it's, it's really, I think part of KM is being able to pivot away from, and quickly sometimes, away from things that you're familiar and comfortable with and really push yourself into areas that you're not comfortable with. Like you asked earlier about, you know, my steep learning curve. I didn't know anything about IT. I I have no background in IT whatsoever. I don't understand computer processes. I don't understand language, programming, none of that. And really, I just sort of asked a lot of those questions of my IT team, 
not so I can replace them, but at least I can have an intelligent conversation with them about what I need and what tools there are to the point now where I don't even need to talk to them anymore. I go to, say, the ILTA convention Mm. or other conferences and I seek out the tools myself. I know now what I need in terms of capabilities and I'll go out there and actively look for vendors that I think can resolve my problems. Yeah, and, and I, so it's a. And it sounds yeah. like you took a very good approach in sort of getting the foundation of the knowledge base, right? So not just sort of seeking out uh, these groups in New York, there are other CAM folks, so they can give you advice and you know get you up to speed very quickly. And it sounds like you sur- surrounded yourself with them, even even though it's it was a little bit uncomfortable and out of your comfort zone for sure. And then the same thing, asking questions of the IT team. I'm sure, by the way, they probably appreciated that because generally, I, I found at least. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident to say I think most people are like this. They're happy to answer questions when people take interest in what they're doing as long as they're sort of intelligent questions and there's a purpose and you're not just wasting people's time just for no reason. And then, yeah, it sounds like then you, that gives you that foundation so you can start putting things into practice and delivering results to gain the confidence of people internally at the firm that give you then bigger and bigger projects that can hopefully make more impact and give you more budget. So you can actually go and experiment with technologies that you might want, right? So sometimes you have to prove yourself with limited resources, limited time in order to get that shot to have the big impact. Ab, you are really fantastic at this. You know, like summarizing the whole thing, I was just sort of like going off the cuff. But yes, you're you're absolutely right. And I think what I also try to do is not always just be the person who's knocking on the door and be like, gimme, gimme, gimme. Mm-hmm. And I try as much as I can to to the extent that the projects that I spearhead not only affects the practice group in KM, but can have some sort of positive impact on, say, marketing or IT. I'll always loop in those teams just so if just so they we can all work together collaboratively and they can let me know if there's a facet that I'm missing because, say, I'm not marketing or IT and there's something that I don't see, they can piggyback on the proposal and see if, you know, it's something that makes sense for all the groups to participate in. Mm. And I, you know, try to be courteous and thankful to all the people that I work with. And I'm really grateful to people, like you said, you know, when you, you go to people for help and you're earnest about your needing help, most people are just really, really fantastic at helping you and lending a hand. Yeah, it's funny how far just basic human decency takes you, actually, because not everyone does that. So if you do, it, it does stand out. And then I just want to ask a couple of things as we're wrapping up. So when you go to conferences or as you now are up to speed with kind of understanding the business problems, the lawyers' pain points and understanding a bit more about technology, and you're going to these conferences like Iltacon and others, how do you separate the signal from the noise, right? So you gave, uh, you mentioned AI and talking earlier, and there's obviously a lot of noise around that, and there's other things, you know, blockchain and so on, and there's all, it seems to evolve and change. How do you separate out, you know, which vendor to go see, which type of technology to focus on, what, you know, who do you actually pay attention to? How do you keep yourself up to date and up to speed on that? I really think it's really trial by fire and that, you know, when I first started going to these conferences, I was just completely overwhelmed by the sheer amount of people 
and by the sheer amount of networking that people are doing, like networking, like I mentioned, is not something that I'm naturally comfortable with. And I'm like, God, it sounds really painful to stand with somebody over drinks. Like, what do you talk about? You know, the weather, I can only talk about the weather for so long. Like your family, that's just weird. But well, now... I you're a pro at it because you've introduced <laughs> me to a few people. And, you know, I remember meeting you waiting to get into, I don't know, I, I can't remember where it was, but Ilta in in DC. And yeah, you seemed like a pro at it. So yeah, whatever you did. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I fake it really, really well. (laughs) But I think that's what like in the beginning, that's where my greenness really came in where I was just like, I don't understand the point of these things. And now I fully understand it. And this is how you like separate the noise, you know, is talking to people and not seeing those conversations as quote unquote networking, but really trying to learn from other people. I'm not like a stereotypical example is, you know, some buzzword comes up like blockchain. I have no idea what a blockchain is. So I hear somebody talking about that as a conference while they're talking or probably after the session's finished, I'll Google it. And then, you know, if we're out with a group of people, like I, I don't make an effort to try to pull this person and the other person. I don't have a game plan about it. I was just naturally bring it up in a conversation where I'll say, you know, I heard this about blockchain today and I literally have no idea what it means. Like, do you? And then you'll have a conversation with somebody about either how much they like me don't know about blockchain or luckily that person will know a little bit about blockchain and I'll sort of be able to pick up bits and pieces from different conversations with people. And this goes back to, you know, asking help when you need it. And people are really good at, at if you show genuine interest, they'll answer all of your questions for you. Like these conferences are fantastic for that when, you know, you don't know, you know, all of the AI tools that are available. I don't know which one to pick. I mean, I do my homework, but it's still very hard to separate vendor A from vendor B from vendor C. And then I reach out to my KM colleagues here in New York and I say, you know, which one of you guys have tried any of these services and then what do you think? So I think that's where the personal people connection really, really matters. And, you know, before I was always sort of uncomfortable with this idea of networking because I feel like, you know, you're striking up a personal relationship, but just as an ends to a means almost, you know, I feel like I'm using somebody and I really was not comfortable with that. But now, you know, I've sort of the idea has pivoted in my head where it's not really I'm not using anybody. I do establish genuine relationships with these people, even if it's just like, you know, a colleague that I see once a quarter who is in a KM role at a different firm, at least when we're together, we can still trade points about what we're doing right now at our firm. And it's all very professional and it's still interesting because it's things I know, even though I've been doing this for five years, I don't know everything. And it's always interesting to hear what other people are doing. Mm. And technology wise, it's moving like a million miles a minute. So it's always great. So even if it's a vendor that I don't end up using their services because, you know, it's an e-discovery and I don't do that at all. Right. It's still interesting to talk to them about, you know, what's on the horizon, what's the new fangled thing. And you can only learn about those things from people who know it inside and out. And that's not me. And I think again, whether you realize it or not, I think you take such a clever approach to this because you're basically crowdsourcing your learning by asking all of these people and asking them simple questions. It's not complicated. It's not a complicated question where you're giving them commentary. It's just, you know, I don't know anything about blockchain. What is it? And do you know what it means? And even if someone 
does know, they'll tell you. If they don't, then at least you get, not only actually does that give you an opportunity to learn about what it is and hopefully you'll stumble onto an expert who can really break it down for you in simple terms, but also it gives you a general sense of actually if I polled, let's say 10 people across an evening or two or a week, whatever it might be, out of those, 80% of the people don't know what blockchain is. That means that it's you can make a fair assumption that it's a emerging technology or certainly one that hasn't yet penetrated into the legal profession yet. So I don't know if you realize that, but it's, I think it's a really good way of doing that because you're collecting data points and information at the same point at the same time and learning about use cases. So yeah, I, You are so good at distilling the main points. Honestly, like I think the perfect job for you, like say when you're retired, right? I'm not right now, don't quit your job because you're really good at it. But like when you're 75, you should be one of those people who write like the book jackets for books, you know, like you summarize this whole novel into this really easy to digest and understand one paragraph. You're like amazingly good. <laughs> Thank you. I will I'll keep that in mind. What a, what a <laughs> job recommendation, book jacket writer. I'll certainly keep, I'll keep that in my back pocket for now. And then the last thing I just wanted to ask of you in summing up, so what's on the horizon for you as you're looking at, you know, at the start of 2019, as you're looking ahead into the year, and it doesn't matter if it's just very broad, but what do you think, what do you think are going to be the main sort of themes or talking points or technology interest area, for example, for you as a KM person, maybe for your firm, or just generally what you've been hearing across the peers? I think the big point really is artificial intelligence, not only here, but generally across KM and just legal technology, artificial, quote unquote, artificial intelligence. I put those in quotes just because, you know, the definition of that really does vary based on, you know, the, the usage case. But I think that's the that's the big way because there's such a variety in what supposedly AI technology is right now. And the application of it is also so varied. Like it will do a different thing for you if you're a corporate lawyer versus if you're in e-discovery versus, you know, if you're in-house. And right now, a lot of the solutions, or at least a lot of the, the products that are out there, a lot of the vendors, they're micro-focused on you know, our AI will do this discrete task for you, corporate lawyer or litigation lawyer. And it seems all, all of this seems a little bit piecemeal in that, you know, this AI technology will deal with this specific problem. That AI technology will deal with that. Even though the, the basic AI concept in the background is all the same, it's all, you know, computer learning and being able to think like a human. So it'll be interesting to see, one, how many of those vendors will stay in their field of expertise and which field of expertise will grow like, you know, AI and I think e-discovery is huge. And then how many of those will actually conglomerate together to become an overarching, you know, AI shop that not only caters to specific fields and industry, but really is a general AI entity that whatever your problem is, will figure out an AI solution to it. So I think that's what's on the horizon. And I think for me, just in a 2019 thing, I think the goal is just, you know, keep on doing what I'm doing and trying to be a better KM and finding better solutions, more creative solutions to the the problems that my attorneys have, you know, Mm -hmm. really try to be helpful and be a good forum citizen. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know that's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. And I really like your, your thoughts on AI. And I think as generally within, within artificial intelligence, there's, there's obviously many branches to that, but one of the overarching goals for a lot of AI researchers is, you know, working towards the goal of something called AGI, artificial general intelligence. So as you said, at the moment, you know, every type of AI and the, basically the use cases are very specific. You're teaching it to, to solve a particular problem or a group of problems, but they are interrelated. The long-term goal is to get this general intelligence that you can kind of like a human being, that you can throw any problem at it and it has enough understanding and intelligence to be able to solve that. I don't think we're going to get there this year, but certainly I think we'll make we'll certainly make strides to it. And my personal, I told this to my team earlier, I think it's going to be with AI, people will stop thinking as this magical thing and you know, just understanding it as like, it's just a bunch of maths, a bunch of statistical models that are getting really, really good at predicting the right thing at the right time. And we'll start seeing that in real life and in more useful ways rather than, you know, there's already, everyone uses AI. If you've used a Google Home or an Amazon Echo or something along those lines, and you're using it in some way. So yeah, I, I can't wait for it to actually start becoming more practical and useful for no i don't i i hope that event horizon is far far off because i think <laughs> once you hey i can do everything that's the day the robots will come for us <laughs> you know, that's the day the lawyers will be replaced <laughs> you don't need a km person to improve your efficiency like the robot can figure <laughs> no, it out enough. itself Sorry, agi is a, <laughs> all the all the ai researchers tell me agi is at least 30 to 50 years away so we have plenty of time for that but we'll make some oh good as long as it's after my generation and my daughter's generation you'll be fine yeah exactly i don't want it to be like a Battlestar galactica kind of kind of thing or you know a terminator kind of thing where like they rise up against us for sure (laughs) well tao it's been wonderful speaking with you thank you so much for giving up your time i really appreciate it i have pages and pages of notes in front of me so it's certainly been helpful for me and if people wanted to beyond i'll include your linkedin profile if that's okay on along with is there any other way that you are are you on Twitter or anything like that? Or is LinkedIn the best place to be? No, I think LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach out to me. And, you know, thanks again for giving me this opportunity. This has been just really, really great fun. You're a great interviewer, like I said. And, you know, I'm glad to have had this opportunity to talk with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.